Sunday Night Health Show podcast. Not in the podcast, we're talking about adult ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, plus burnout, and self-care practices with Dr. Tommy Mitchell. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. Imagine living your entire life in pain, only to discover that your self-diagnosed sports injury was not what you had expected it to be. That continuous, persistent, gnawing, low back pain isn't just age or a recurring injury. It could be something entirely different. It could be spondyloarthritis, a severe inflammatory disease. Most patients with spondyloarthritis are under the age of 45 years old when they're diagnosed. And it is critical that we have new treatments and therapies available for people because apparently this condition can be resistant to medications and the limited options available make it a challenge for patients. Joining me on the line to discuss this and also to talk about what life is like with a chronic illness is Dr. Jonathan Chan, rheumatologist and assistant clinical professor at the University of British Columbia. Good evening, Dr. Chan. Welcome back to the program. Hi, thank you for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to have you back. Thank you so much. This is, I'm sure that this is going to hit a nerve, if you will, with a lot of people. So many people not only complain about low back pain, a lot of athletes, but they also complain about there's nothing that they can do. And they also self-diagnose. This is a very common thing where people just assume it's one thing. I actually knew of a a patient who had assumed that they had arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, because one of their parents did, and it ended up being um, terminal cancer, actually. Now, that's mm. a pretty severe case, but that self-diagnosis thing, um, I think, is something a lot of people do today, especially with Dr. Google. So let's get back to um, spondyloarthritis. Tell, tell the listeners exactly what that is. Yeah, so it's a chronic autoimmune condition where your immune system, rather than fighting infections like it should be doing, uh, attacks the spine and causes inflammation and pain and stiffness. And it can be associated with a number of other clinical features like hot swollen joints, particularly knees, elbows, ankles, but also tendons like plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendonitis, um, uveitis, so inflammation in the eye, Crohn's ulcerative colitis in the bowels, and psoriasis, a specific type of skin rash that uh, oftentimes uh, individuals can have. And so those are kind of the, the red flags, if you will, for this type of condition. Wow, you're, you're talking to a lot of people out there who suffer with a lot of those chronic conditions. Um, do, do people have to have an, an additional, and, and I'm also surprised to hear that it's an autoimmune disease as well, when somebody just thought it was a sports injury. Um, or that their pain was the result of a sports injury. Mm -hmm. Do people typically have to have other uh, symptoms that you mentioned or other conditions that you mentioned to be diagnosed with this? Not necessarily. So about 60% of individuals will only have low back, buttock, or hip pain. Um, I, I should preface that by saying that, you know, in the grand scheme of things, because low back pain is it is quite common in the general population. This okay. comprises about 5% of individuals with chronic back pain. So it's not, it's not rare, but it's not common per se. Like it's, um, it's about the same prevalence as rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, roughly a per 1% of the general population. And uh, oftentimes, as you mentioned, it starts off in the 20s and 30s, uh, this kind of gradually building up chronic low back pain and often associated with stiffness for 30 minutes or more in the morning and improves with a bit of activity. But oftentimes people are waking up from sleep due to pain uh, or when they're resting, that's when everything tightens up and, and gets worse. And so, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, there's a huge delay in diagnosis too because it is under-recognized even within the medical community. Uh, you know, for a long time, it was when I was going through medical school, we were told it was exceedingly rare, you know, less than one in a thousand. But, you know, with newer technology, we've discovered that a lot of individuals may have it, been, but may not um, have evidence of it on x-ray. But when you use newer technology like MRI, you can detect the inflammation much better. Mm -hmm. So it's not just um, about an assessment, symptom assessment. There is something that can confirm the diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, you do want something objective, if you will. 
So they, they have ind- like these individuals have have pain, and oftentimes we may start with uh, a regular X-ray, but we know that a lot of the times that's either it takes years to develop sufficient damage on uh, to detect it on X-ray, and and many individuals never get X-ray changes, which is why in the last decade or so we've been using specialized MRIs to detect the inflammation of the bone. And sometimes you can detect it in the blood as well, and there's certain genetic markers we could check for uh, to try to identify people who are higher at risk. Uh-huh. Spond- spondyloarthritis can be very debilitating, or a debilitating disease, as it sounds like. What is life mm-hmm. like for those living with a chronic illness like yeah. this? Well, there is a wide spectrum. There are many individuals who uh, don't, it doesn't bother them that much. They might do a bit of yoga and or, or stretch, and that's all they need. But for quite a few, it can result in you know chronic pain, stiffness. We, we did this survey, and this is a survey across multiple countries, but we did it in Canada as well. And of those who responded with a history of spondylitis, about a quarter of them were saying they were on disability, and another quarter were saying they, they'd show up to work, but... Um, they were we call it uh, presenteeism, so they're not firing on all cylinders and um, not giving their best effort. And a lot of them were um, aware that they had been, you know, passed over job opportunities uh, because of their condition, because they were calling sick days or uh, missing out and, and not able to commit, uh, just like other people without this condition might be able to. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I understand that. Um, I, I had a recent sports injury myself. <laughs> I'm a real athlete now. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I had a hard time going to the store. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. You know, it just, it's gnawing on you and it's, you know, it makes you tired and, you know, it really, you know, it can impact your mood. And you're, you're also wondering, like, for this one, it persisted about a week um, where it was painful. I actually had to be on crutches. But, um, you know, you're thinking, is this ever going to get better? You know, they're telling me it's mm-hmm. going to get better, so I'm going to have faith in that. But with a chronic illness, it's not uh, something that's going to get better. What, what's the impact on emotional and mental health? Absolutely. A lot of individuals. So we, we recently did a, a forum for patients in, in BC, uh, to get, or in Vancouver, I should say, uh, to increase you know, education, and we did a needs assessment of patients uh, from the Canadian Spondylitis Association. And the number one question people had was mental health, you know, um, depression, anxiety. A lot of individuals uh, uh, struggle with fatigue. And the other challenging thing, because it's under-recognized, the average uh, time from symptom onset to when the diagnosis is made in Canada is about eight to nine years. So people often struggle for for many years uh, before they, they have an answer. Uh, but thankfully now we do have good good options for for therapy. Uh, no, we haven't cured people yet, but a lot of people can have can go into remission on medications uh, if needed. And and as I mentioned, some people, uh, a lot of people don't necessarily need medications. But you know, if they're aware of what their limitations are, what to watch out for, that can also be helpful for maintaining good health. Dr. Jonathan Chan, rheumatologist and assistant clinical professor at the University of British Columbia, is my guest. We are talking about chronic illnesses, in particular spondyloarthritis, a severe autoimmune inflammatory disease. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Chan. My pleasure. Now, this, um, in my little bit of research, it's not easy to treat, like many chronic illnesses. <laughs> it's not easy to mm-hmm. treat. They, they go on and on. Dr. Chen? Hello, can you hear me? Oh, yeah, I can hear you, yes. So okay, it's sorry, not I missed that, but yeah. It's not easy to treat this particular mm-hmm. yes, yeah. um, illness. So what are some of the treatment options for people? Well, we often start with, you know, regular exercise. There is evidence that physiotherapy can help with function. Um, I'm a big advocate of core strengthening exercises for, for back, all causes of back pain. And we have physiotherapists who can work with the patients here in Vancouver, uh, covered at the uh, Mary Pack Arthritis Center. Um, there are There is a big question about, you know, diet. Can diet change uh, the impact of these chronic illnesses? And, you know, I think it's an area that warrants more research. There are a number of centers that have looked at this. Um, anecdotally, there are patients and and some clinicians who feel that it makes a big difference, but it is a bit of a, a trial and error. And ultimately, I, I often tell patients, 
we want to get you better. So if you're really struggling and you're suffering, why don't we try some of these medications at the same time, do your dietary changes, and we'll try to peel back the meds when we can, um, you know, provided it's uh, severe enough. Um, the next step would be uh, anti-inflammatories, thing, things like uh, Aleve or uh, Naproxen or or um, or some of the other oral anti-inflammatories. And then, then we go on to some of the more uh, advanced therapies, such as uh, biologics, which would include uh, TNF inhibitors uh, or IL-17 inhibitors. And uh, more recently, there's been oral JAK inhibitors, which have also been quite effective for, for helping manage uh, the condition. And, you know, you mentioned diet at the beginning, and there is some evidence coming out to support that um, diet can be very helpful for um, inflammatory conditions, even cancer. Um, there's some evidence mm -hmm. to support that. I know it's, it's a little bit weak, but what are some of the uh, foods that should be avoided that might be associated with inflammation? You know, it's, um, I don't think we have strong enough evidence to point one way or the other. Um, I've had some individuals, and this is more anecdotal, right? So I've had patients who've tried anything from a starch-free diet, gluten-free, dairy-free, cutting out nightshades. Uh, the fact is it's never been studied specifically for spondylitis, and I don't discourage my patients from trying these things. Uh, but I, uh, you know, I would say that for every patient that I've had who's had some success, I'd probably have 10 or more who've tried and it didn't work for them. But, you know, it, it's not um, unreasonable to give it a try, I'd say. Mm -hmm. And how about sugar? That's the one I was looking for, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you know, overall, it's probably a good thing to reduce our sugar intake anyways. Uh, but I, again, you know, there are a lot of um, mouse models where the, uh, with spondylitis where if you eliminate uh, the bacteria in these um, mice that are predisposed to spondylitis, they don't develop the condition. But when you start introducing bacteria, they, they can develop that inflammation. And um, so theoretically, we, we know that a lot of the inflammation chemicals do come from bacteria in the gut. And so mm -hmm. theoretically, if you starve the bad ones and fertilize the good ones with our foods, maybe we can adjust that. And, and there are some trials that I've been told are ongoing, but so far it's uh, nothing has uh, been proven yet. So we can't really make a strong recommendation there. Um, but I think overall, I think a lot of the diets that are out there probably align with just an overall healthy diet, you know, reducing processed uh -huh. foods and eating more vegetables and fiber. But, um, you know, I've had patients tell me anything from a carnivore diet to a keto diet has, has totally removed their symptoms. And if, uh, if they're functioning well, you know, I'm happy for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, again, any time you are eating healthily, you know, we're sticking to good nutrition, healthy diets, um, you know, we feel better, have more energy, more productive, mm -hmm. you know, I think, I think it just kind of goes along with it. Um, and of course, obesity and other chronic illness can absolutely contribute yeah. to other problems like hypertension. And, and that's the thing about chronic illnesses, like you, you start having one, and then you put on add on another one, and then another one, and, and people's quality of life really diminishes. Mm hmm. And then, as you mentioned, you know, a lot of these individuals also have risk for cardiovascular disease, which is elevated with, with any of these inflammatory types of arthritis, including ankylosing spondylitis. And mm -hmm. so trying to address those other uh, risk factors like hypertension, hyperlipidemia uh, with diet, you know, I think that's also important, too. Yes, absolutely. Where can people get more information about this? Or if somebody out there is listening, uh, what would you suggest that they do? You know, a good resource is uh, spondylitis.ca. That's the Canadian Spondyloarthritis Association. And uh, they are always looking for individuals who, um, you know, have spondylitis or have someone they know who has spondylitis who are interested in uh, whether it be raising awareness or spreading the word uh, locally, uh, fundraising. I think that's a good place to start. Uh, if you think you might have spondylitis, I think you probably need to see a rheumatologist because it is a still an under-recognized condition amongst most clinicians. Um, and so I think that's uh, probably the best way to get diagnosed if, if that's something you're suspicious about. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for raising awareness about spondyloarthritis and also the other chronic illnesses and just how to live a healthy life, Dr. Chan. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, is a condition that's usually associated with those misbehaving children. 
And that is for good reason, because the symptoms typically appear during childhood, which is also a time when most people receive a diagnosis. But usually those kids with ADHD grow up to be adults with ADHD and they struggle as adults. They might even struggle a bit more because they've never had access to treatment providers in childhood and they don't even have a diagnosis, but they just know that a life of impulsivity, disorganization, trouble relaxing, a hot temper, low self-esteem can impact their quality of life. Joining me on the line to sort all of this out is Dr. Gurdeep Parhar. He is a clinical professor. He's also the director of the Adult ADHD Center. He is a speaker, researcher, occupational physician, and a disability physician as well. He has a specialty in disability medicine. Good evening, Dr. Parhar. Good evening, Maureen. Thank you for having me on. Oh, well, I'm so delighted to have you on because this is a condition, as I mentioned, it's typically associated with kids. We don't think about that, but as people grow up, older, go out and go to university, college, get into the workforce, they start to have problems. I mentioned a few of the symptoms of adult ADHD. What are some of the other symptoms of adult, adult ADHD, some of the common ones? Absolutely, Maureen, and, and you've, you've, um, you've pointed out a really good point. Our understanding of ADHD is that it's a neurodevelopmental condition, which means that people are probably born with it. They probably do have symptoms before the age of 12. It's just that sometimes, unfortunately, they don't get recognized and they don't get picked up. And what we understand now is that about 5% of the adult population probably has ADHD and just hasn't been diagnosed. And, and the sad thing is that of the adults out there with ADHD, 80% of them either have never been diagnosed or not, haven't been treated. And when you, you've hit on some of the really important symptoms, so there are things like not being able to pay attention in conversations, not being able to attention, pay attention in school, during lectures, in, in work environments, not being able to pay attention to your customers, your clients, your coworkers, your supervisors. But it goes much beyond that. And, and when we think about inattention, we think about the focus and the inattention issues. And as you said, you think about children being physically hyperactive, not being able to sit still. But the other aspects that happen, especially in adulthood, are things like emotional dysregulation. That means people that just all of a sudden have these angry outbursts or crying outbursts. And we think that's part of the hyperactivity of the emotional aspects of not being able to control your emotions that's now being manifest as this emotional dysregulation. There's a, there's a term called um, rejection sensitivity dysphoria, which is sometimes when somebody rejects a person who has ADHD or doesn't answer their text when they're texted or they, they send a message and they don't respond to the message right away, the person with ADHD uh, it has this really profound, almost histrionic reaction um, about being rejected when they may not be being rejected. And then there's also the impulsive aspect, the impulsive behaviors. And we saw this a lot during the pandemic, Maureen, where people with ADHD were, and a lot of other people were too, but certainly with people with ADHD were doing it more, the online gambling, the online shopping, um, online binge spending, um, porn, binge drinking, binge eating, binge drugs. So that impulsive behavior um, often goes along with ADHD and brings a lot of harm to people and their families who have ADHD that hasn't been treated or hasn't been assessed. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, I want to get back to the technology a little bit because, and especially around not being able to pay attention in conversations. You know, we are so distracted from tech by technology these days, with whether it's our iPhone, AirPods, computer. Um, it, and so is it that easy distractibility? You know, sometimes I am talking to somebody on the phone and having a conversation and then you know that they check out basically they've gone online they're on the computer and they're not paying attention because they ask you to repeat what you've said and then you say to them are you doing something else and, and they'll <laughs> you know say yes they were so i mean are we having more difficulty paying attention just in general as a society because of technology brilliant question so i think that um, people with adhd will get distracted no matter what is around them so in, in the olden times, before internet and online, you know, tablets and smartphones, somebody sitting in a classroom might be looking out the window, staring at the squirrel, or they might be watching the, the leaf fall from the tree, or watching the back of the teacher's head, or, or paying attention to somebody making noise at the adjacent desk. Now, what's happening, what's happening with technology is we have even more distractions that are at our fingertips. 
right? So all the screen time that we often talk about, you know, when, when you go to look up something, all of a sudden you're down some rabbit hole onto some web page an hour later. So it, I, I just want to make it clear, though, that it's not the screen time, it's not the technology causing ADHD. ADHD, there's, it's a neurodevelopmental you know, issue with how your brain is connecting or not connecting properly. But, it's, but it certainly are the, 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 uh, what we're teased with are the extra availability of distractions now with technology. As you said, there's just so many more things that are fin- at our fingertips that the likelihood that we're going to get distracted is, is more just because there's so many distractions in our way. Mm-hmm. And, and are people with ADHD or undiagnosed ADHD more likely to succumb to those distractions, not to be able to focus on a conversation? Uh, absolutely. And, and when you think about distractions, you know, all of us have had the moment where we're in a conversation and our mind might wander or we wish we weren't there and we start thinking about lunch or we start thinking about what we want to do next. Everybody may have that, but then we force ourselves to, to reconnect into the conversation. Now, people with ADHD don't have that ability to bring that focus back. And, and that's the sad part about that is they don't realize, because they don't, they've never lived a different life, they don't realize that for the rest of us, we are able to bring our conversation, our focus back to what we're supposed to be paying attention to. But people with ADHD don't have that ability to do it. Or if they do it, it's just super exhausting. Um, there are studies out yeah. now... Um, that show that people with ADHD put in four times the effort to get something done that somebody without ADHD does. Four times the effort. So even if you're just as productive as somebody without ADHD, it's exhausting. It's not sustainable. Oh, I, I, can, I can only imagine. Uh, I, I don't think I have it, but um, <laughs> I, I've never been diagnosed. Um, I don't have the hot temper, that's for sure. Um, I've spent the day organizing. <laughs> so which brings me to another um, symptom. Uh, you know, we think of ADHD and it's common to think of that lack of focus, difficulty focusing, but a lot of kids in, in particular can hyper-focus. Talk to me about that, with, especially with adult ADHD. Yeah, the typical story, and this is one of the myths out there, some parents will say, my kid doesn't have ADHD. They can play that video game for 11 hours. They're able to focus. They're just not wanting to focus on their schoolwork or their house chores. They only want to focus on their video game. In fact, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the child or even the adult who focuses or hyper-focuses on something, that's actually a symptom of ADHD. So what you're supposed to be able to do in what we call the neurotypical brain is you should be able to do the tasks you want to do but not have to turn off the rest of the world. What people with ADHD tend to do is they hyper-focus on one thing to the exclusion of everything else. They actually turn everything else off, and that's not healthy. Um, and it certainly is a symptom of ADHD. To think about it, it's almost the w- brain is wired in one direction, but ignoring all the other signals. And you can imagine how things could get dangerous when that happens. If somebody is focused, for example, just on their work or just on that binging, you know, that streaming series on Netflix or whatever, and then they don't get up to eat or they don't get up to bathe or they don't get up to answer the telephone or listen to that smoke alarm, it could be quite dangerous. Right, right. Very interesting. I have, after having just finished Succession <laughs> and, and feeling like I, we were addicted to it, <laughs> got to go home and watch Succession tonight. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we did limit ourselves. And so I, I suppose that's difficult for people with ADHD to be able to limit. And, you know, at least we didn't stay up all night, <laughs> I guess. I'm, I'm glad for that. Um, but also people with a- adult ADHD also have trouble relaxing and and so do they take on too much because i know planning is an issue as well so I, I think partly they take on things because people with adhd tend to be a, be a bit scrambled right they have interests in a lot of different areas and they can't seem to prioritize or organize those different tasks or priorities and that means that they often don't do anything well or they do things well at the at the expense of other things and that becomes um, a bit of an issue. And so when, when people with ADHD are trying to um, prioritize things, they just can't seem to get all their um, thoughts or organized and, and move forward in the way that they want to be moving forward. And so that, that, that can be quite, quite a challenge. And studies now are sh- saying that really what we should be doing, even people without ADHD, is focus on one task for a little bit of time and then take a break. Um, and for people that are trying to go in a lot of different directions at once, that becomes quite challenging. And people with ADHD just have difficulty prioritizing. And, and then it becomes quite, quite unhealthy in a lot of ways because then, then they're risking relationships and they're risking their performance in school and performance in, at work. 
um, and, and it becomes a bit of an issue. And is that different from the chronic over busyness of today's world? I mean, I hear so much from people, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. You know, is, is that, um, can, can that be somebody with AD, adult ADHD? So uh, being busy isn't necessarily a bad thing. Um, so being busy means you're occupying your time, just that you're hopefully occupying it with things that are important to you when you lay out your goals for, you know, your day and, and your family and your, um, uh, your future career goals, your future financial goals, your health goals. Um, I think it's all right to be busy to working towards them. What happens then you don't want is that clutter. You don't want to be busy with stuff that's not relevant or stuff that at the end of the day you're going to say, where did the day go? I didn't really do the things that I was supposed to do and prioritize those, those things. Um, people with ADHD, for example, will have all the unopened mail. Right? They'll have the envelope sitting there and they have not attended to the bills. And they might, those invoices might have come two or three times with penalties now. Or the hydro is about to be disconnected or the Wi-Fi is about to be disconnected. So they aren't able to prioritize things that are important um, for them and their family, and that's how they get themselves into trouble. And, and this is a persistent problem. So it's not like one time you forgot to pay your credit card or, um, you know, didn't renew your car registration or insurance or, you know, it's not. But if it happens year after year and, and other things go miss, not paying bills and getting overwhelmed and, you know, losing your temper and, and also having... Uh, being highly disorganized or where somebody else has to organize you. Um, yeah, for, those, for sure. that's the part more of the, the adult. Where, exactly. This is the part of the discussion where when I start talking, people all think they have ADHD. And that's not true. Not, you know, everyone's allowed to be a little <laughs> bit forgetful. Everyone's allowed to you know, forget the odd thing or have their mind wander in a conversation. But you've, you've said it very nicely, Maureen. It's when it happens all the time. I met a fellow um, earlier uh, this year. It was, he was on to his 11th bank card, 11th bank card already. And, and, and he'd lost 11 bank cards. Or the, or the young woman who was on to her sixth cell phone. You know, we all misplace our cell phones or we might not remember where we parked our car. But when you do it that often with something that significant, there might be something going on. Um, that that right. needs some assessment and some attention. Yeah, that reminds me. I had a patient who said that they had lost their bank card, you know, like 13 times, and the bank said, we're not giving you another one. <laughs> so, I mean, it can really impact one's quality of life. But how – I know you have a, a, an event coming up, and I do want to talk – why don't you quickly mention the event, which is a virtual event I'm so happy about. But, but tell me about the event that you have coming up on June 29th virtual event. So at the Adult ADHD Centre, we do assessments and treatments for people across Canada and every province and territory. And, we, and the other arm besides the clinical arm is we do research and studies around ADHD. But our third arm is around education. We're really on this mission to educate the public. And Maureen, it's because there's so much misinformation out there in the general public about what ADHD is. So this, um, this uh, June 29th on a Thursday, we're having a live event. Um, it's physically going to be in Burnaby, so for people that want to attend in person, um, it'll be at the um, um, Bonsier Community Centre in Burnaby, but we're also uh, uh, virtually streaming it live as well for people anywhere else in the country. So it's June 29th, and the details are actually on our website. So if you go to adultadhdcenter.com, and it's the Canadian spelling of centre with an R-E at the end, and, and, uh, and then click under Living with ADHD and then uh, Events and Education Events, You'll see all the details there, and, um, and it, we welcome you to attend. And really, this will be a bit of a primer. It's ADHD 101. We want people to understand what ADHD is, either for themselves or their loved ones, and then to, and then to think about what can be done. And this is probably, and Maureen, you said it at the beginning when you introduced the topic tonight, is that this is a condition that's treatable. You know, when we think about treating, you know, uh, heart disease and depression and anxiety, there's lots of great treatments for those. My guest is Dr. Gurdi Parhar, and we are talking about adult ADHD. Dr. Parhar, I know I said I wanted to talk to you, and by the way, thanks for staying on the line. I wanted to talk to you about the treatments, but how does an adult get diagnosed? If somebody out there is listening, think, I've had all these troubles, and we don't have a whole lot of time. I've had all these troubles my whole life. This sounds so familiar. What are, what's the next step besides attending your event on the 29th? So certainly, I'm, I mean, I would say the first, your first stop is your primary care practitioner. 
I would say to go to your family physician or your nurse practitioner that you see for all your other sort of primary care health issues and talk to them about it. Most family physicians and nurse practitioners are now um, well-trained and able to make the diagnosis. If for some reason they're not or they're hesitating or, or your situation's complex because you also have, say, depression or anxiety or a substance use issue, you have something else going on, perhaps then they'll need to refer you on to either um, a psychiatrist or psychologist or to a centre like ours if, if they need some extra assistance with the diagnosis. So I would start with okay. the family doctor. Um, nurse and, and something I hear from something I hear from patients, adults, patients about their children and also about themselves. Well, there's no blood test for ADHD. Uh, I don't think my child has it, even though they're failing in school and struggling and, you know, having a, a lot of the symptoms that you mentioned or um, adults having the same you know, difficulty with focusing, disorganization, procrastination, we haven't mentioned that. Um, and yet they say, well, you know, it's not like a blood, like you can take a blood pressure or do a, a blood test. So how do you know? I always find that a fascinating question, Maureen. If you think about it, when, when a patient comes into us, your practice or my practice, <clears throat> and they say they're depressed and they go through all the symptoms of depression, or we go through the symptoms of anxiety, do we do a blood test on them? Do we do an, an medical imaging on them? Um, no, what we do is we listen to their symptoms and then we see if their symptoms meet the criteria, what we call our DSM-5 criteria. We make the diagnosis and if necessary, we start the non-medication treatments and the medication treatments. So I always say to people who say, why isn't there a blood test or why isn't there you know, a scan of some type, is why are you holding ADHD to a different standard than we do all the other important mental health issues out there? Right? So we can make diagnoses and quite well treat depression. When a patient comes to me for depression and you, you can go through a PHQ-9, our criteria for depression, make a diagnosis, and then move on to some sort of management, whether it's medication or you know, counseling and uh, CBT or whatever treatment you're going to do. And I would say to people who are doubting ADHD, I think that cynicism or the suspicion is, isn't healthy. You know, we're putting up extra barriers for people with ADHD when, when we don't for other mental health conditions. And I don't think it's fair to them because they've spent most of their life struggling. Now, to deny them clarity of why their brain is working the way it works just doesn't, doesn't seem fair. Mm -hmm. You know, I um, had an email from somebody. Uh, it's a little bit um, of subject, kind of, but... Uh, dear Maureen, depression is a misnomer. It's not about depressed mood. That's a symptom. When we call depression... What we call depression is really about chronic stress. Depressed mood is only a symptom, and not everyone with a DSM diagnosis experiences mood symptoms. And so here's this other, you know, we're kind of getting into the weeds here in terms of people suffering. Um, uh, totally. And I think that at the end of the day, um, a lot of people don't necessarily, they're not searching for medications or seeking, you know, some particular, you know, accommodation at work or at school. A lot of times people come to us, Maureen, and they will just have an emotional outburst because we say to them, you have ADHD. And they say, I just knew there was something different about the way my brain worked. And, and just understanding that about yourself, that you were, there was something different about the way the connections in your brain work compared to everyone else in your class everyone else in your family and everyone else in the world around you. And, and just having that understanding itself is really profound because for a lot of people, then it explains past experiences. I remember we were giving a talk and there was a nurse in the audience and there were some people kind of hesitating or being cynical or suspicious about ADHD diagnoses. And the, and we, the microphone sort of went around to her and she said, "You, all you folks have no clue. She said, once I got it, started getting treated for my ADHD, was I real, that's when I realized how quiet your world is. Because up until then, I heard the, 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 the buzzing of the light, the mosquito in the room, the person with the shoes walking down the hallway, the car outside. But only after I started getting treated for ADHD did I realize that all the rest of you, quote-unquote, normal people, I don't know if anyone's really normal, but that all the rest of you actually live in a world that's quiet. My world was really noisy, right? And right. so I don't even... And so I think you have to be the person with ADHD to understand how much you're struggling and, 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 and then how much better your, your life could be. And I think that's the, that's the important part here is that um, there are a lot of adults out there who've been struggling and they don't know that life's different for everyone. Exactly. We're up against the clock. I could talk to you about this forever. Thank you so much. And uh, just to give us the website again so people can sign up for the event. 
So the free education event is adultadhdcenter.com, and that's tre.com. And if you go to the tab, it says Living with ADHD, and underneath that will be educational events. And it's June 29th in Burnaby, and it'll be um, live-streamed across the country as well. It's starting at 6.30 um, on June 29th, and if you need any more information, it's all on the website there on how to register. About self-care tonight, in part because you know so many people suffer with chronic illnesses, with loss, with grief, with heartbreak, heartache, um, and so you know I when I went to school and uh, elementary school, I remember the nun said, "Who's the most important person in your life?" And everybody was guessing the new baby that was just born, their mother, their father, and you know she said no. It's actually, and she said, whose teeth do you brush in the morning? Whose face do you wash? You are the most important person. So it's self-care is so important, but it's way beyond nannies and teddies. Also, we're going to be talking about a new way of making your marriage successful. And also when people have troubles in life, relationship issues, loss, shock of a loved one's fate or a new diagnosis, so often they try to control things, but you soon learn that you can't if you're lucky you can do everything you can but you can not necessarily change the course of things but there is something that you can do and i'm going to be talking about that but right now joining me on the line is dr tomi mitchell she's a medical doctor but she also specializes in wellness and performance and she helps people to reduce burnout and overwhelm so they can increase productivity in the workplace so we're going to talk a little bit about that tonight because just with the post pandemic, there's a lot of PTSD apparently. I didn't realize the uh, pandemic has caused a lot of PTSD for a lot of people. Our lives change in so many different ways. And, you know, some people might be struggling. And so Dr. Mitchell and I, who so graciously joins me on the line. Good evening, Dr. Mitchell. Good evening, Maureen. How are you today? I'm fine, thank you. How are you doing? I'm good. Excellent, excellent. Um, so we're going to be talking about uh, some of the work that you do is really around uh, self-care for people and people's performances and how to reduce burnout and overwhelm. I don't know if you were listening, but we were just talking about adult ADHD. It's not limited to adult ADHD, people who get burnt out or are chronically stressed or, or who are stressed um, and get overwhelmed and just have way too much on. Um, and that can affect their health and their mental health and emotional health. And then that leads into the workplace and into their relationships and their home life and family life and friends life. And, you know, it's just so, you know, it's just so common and so challenging um, for people to, to live this way. So what are some of the more common issues that you see in your practice when you help people to perform optimally? Very good question. Um, so I like to dive deep into the root causes and it might surprise listeners. Most people think it's, you know, the job, it's too busy, et cetera, et cetera. It's really diving deep into where our thoughts and beliefs started that made us more prone to getting burnt out, to not prioritizing our self-care. And the answer is really our early childhood experiences. So Basically, most conversations start at the root and how we are programmed and then work on reprogramming it. Now, back to your questions more. At this point, not a whole lot surprises me because I've lived through burnout. So what I do is actually an extension of um, what I've lived and many of my patients and clients have lived. But it is everywhere. I, I think people think, like you were saying, it's just, People with certain diagnoses have to think about it. No, it's everyone that lives and breathes on this earth needs to be aware of it. We need to be aware of our energy input and energy output and make sure that energy input is greater than energy output. That's such a great way of putting it. You're absolutely correct. I certainly experienced burnout myself, and I never want to experience it again. So I protect myself yes. from it. In fact, somebody reached out to me on LinkedIn today out expert you know do you want i can do an assessment for you people you know they don't really know me but anyway they assume all these things they're like people at your level i think they even thought i was in tech um you know often experience burnout and i'm like you know i'm good thank you so much but 
um, would you like to come on the show and, and, and talk about this subject? Because it's such an important subject, um, yes. you know, for people, because unless people are aware that burnout can happen, then it just gets, you know, it gets, it gets, a, life gets away from you. It just happens to you. And so it's really something that people can prevent, but let's, before we prevent it, what are some of the symptoms? Cause I think this is the most common. And I do also want to talk, I have so many thoughts right now. <laughs> um, I want to talk about going back to the childhood as well. Um, what are the most common symptoms of burnout? I mean, I know what I experienced, but I'll let me yeah. educate the listeners. So let's be straight what burnout isn't. It's not just feeling tired and stressed because guess what? Most people are tired or stressed at the end of their work week. It is much deeper than that. So it, it can be emotional, physical, and mental exhaustion. Like you have nothing left to give. That came as a result of prolonged excessive stress. And how was it manifest? Well, you're probably going to be lack of motivation. I know I was. I didn't want to do anything. I literally just took a hiatus. And cynicism. You know, um sense of detachment, like withdrawing from things that usually brought you pleasure and now maybe they're bringing frustration. So it's it's profound, it's deep, it's seen in not just one aspect of our life. And that's the thing, I go back to, even though I talk about professional development, as a primary care family doctor, my whole thing is families. And most of this starts at the home and or early childhood experiences, and it manifests in our workplaces, in our relationships, you know. So that's burnout. And there's definitely, you could break it down more, but that's the general definition of burnout. I felt, and I, and I use this word to my patients to describe it, depletion. You're depleted. Yes, you got exactly. Nothing. You got nothing left. Nothing. Not got at the nothing beginning left of the day, <laughs> not at the yes. end of the day. You got nothing. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you go to sleep and you wake up, you're just like, what? I didn't even sleep. You know, I'm not rested. I slept for eight hours. I was out, but I do not feel rested getting up. Exactly. Um, shortness of breath, um, you know, anxiety, the doorbell rings, you're just on high alert. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, I, I just felt like, anyway, those are some of the things that I had experienced. I, and it was the result of workplace bullying. But, you know, yeah have to take a look at yourself and you know I am definitely a, a reformed people pleaser <laughs> I say to people now they're like oh you're so nice I'm like you think I'm nice now I used to be so much nicer <laughs> I had to not be I, I've had to learn how not to be so nice I mean I'm a middle child I I'm a uh, you know I like to make the peace keep the peace yeah. peacemaker as well I still see myself doing that with my siblings today you know, it's just automatic. Um, but it's, you know, to recover from it and to learn about it and prevent it, there's no greater gift, really. Yeah. Um, because it's just a, it's an awful way to live. Um, and so what, how do people come to see you and, and explain this? Or, or what are the, some of the common things that occur in childhood that actually leads to this before we get to some of the reasons people present to you. Yes. Um, so common things are not being able to be a child, like having to grow up too quickly, having to be the parent in the relationships due to reasons that your caregiver's parents were not able to give you the, you know, the attention you need. Um, tumultuous homes. You know, um, having the loss of, a, like, let's say your parents broke up or like you mentioned, a middle child. I was a I was a third out of fourth, not quite middle, but I, you know, I, I can get it. Um, having to feel like you're not good enough. Maybe you got an A or A minus and maybe your parents like, where's the rest of the grade? Like what happened to the A plus? So, again, it's those messages that we were programmed, that were programmed into our minds as young children. And they infiltrate our life and they play back in our subconscious mind. So, and as a result, we are more prone to responding in situations in certain ways. So like people Uh pleaser, you know, there's a root to it. People who are um, perfectionists, there's a root to that too. But that being said, work burnout can be a a factor of being bullied, being discriminated against, um, loss of jobs, loss of a loved one. Like there's other things that build up. So it's like a pyramid effect, right? Uh And it could just be that one thing at work, that one nasty manager that just ticks you off and just, you know, 
sets you off, right? But it's a pyramid. We've got to look at the foundation and all the layers of burnout. Right, exactly. You know, I think I was always told, you could do anything. <laughs> you mm -hmm. could do anything. You're, and, you know, I was an easygoing personality. And I just found that, you know, I, I could do this. And I would see unhappy people. And I think, I'll try to make you happy. You know, <laughs> and, mm -hmm. you know, I would, I mean, some of the silliest things that I did that was seriously out of kindness, like I was no malice. I was just trying to be nice. And, you know, people, um, just nasty back, you know, and so it was, it was a situation of workplace bullying, which is another whole thing yeah. um, for me, but, you know, just learning to set those limits and, you know, no, I learned, I can't do everything, you know, um, that I have to have downtime and, and take care of myself and, you know, get back to that. You know, I, I mean, I certainly was not, um, raised as an adult in the family, you know, like uh, that was not the situation in our family. You know, I, I have to say we had six kids in eight years and wow. this feels like a therapy session for me. So you can imagine <laughs> that that's, <laughs> but my mother always said, make life easy on yourself. That was her, that is her mantra of life. Yeah. My guest is Dr. Tommy Mitchell. We're talking about burnout and how we can prevent it and what exactly self-care is. Thanks so much for staying on the line. Dr. Mitchell, I really appreciate it. Um, so how does one prevent burnout? Because that would be awesome. <laughs> yes, yeah, great question. First thing is being aware of what burnout is, because quite frankly, up until I was burnt out a number of years ago, I really didn't think much of it. But then it hit me. I'm like, holy crap, this is what's going on. So how do you prevent it? We talked about the energy equation. We need to have the energy inputs, things that bring you life, that recharge you, that are nurturing. Now, you might think getting plastic on a weekend is charging, but it's actually sucking energy. So you really have to be picking healthy things that nurture us and promote one's creativity to bring in our lives. Um, the other thought, thought that came to mind during the break is this whole thing of the relationships. You know, when, let's say, your partner annoys you they say you've got to do seven things good to make up for the one thing bad i think our bodies are very similar so you know when you have that stressful deadline at work where it seems like there's not enough hours in a day you really need to be patient with yourself and take that time and multiple you know moments to recharge your life it's not like oh let's go away this one weekend and we're good that makes up for the past six months of madness no there has to be those moments where you you know stop pause, mindfulness, you enjoy nature, you go for a quick walk at your lunch break, actually take a break and walk, you know, do those things. Or, or here's a really good one. You can actually recharge yourself by charging others, by saying something nice to someone with sincerity, you know, complimenting somebody. That actually reach self-charges one. It's actually pretty cool. Plus it makes them happier than then there's a ripple effect. Um, so... Now how, how about saying no? I think a lot of people who get burnt oh. out do everything for everybody. The type yes. of personality. I know that's what happened yes. to me. That because to I me was so too. capable. I was mm -hmm. that was my messaging. You're so capable, you can do it, you're confident. Yeah. But let's get more you to do it. You know, and so I did it. I you know, I happen yeah. to have a lot of energy and mm -hmm. but I did it too much. And so I didn't say no to anybody. Yeah. And so how about a lot of women in particular don't think that yes. it's an answer. People feel I guilty if they topic. don't say. Yes. No. no is a complete sentence, actually. You can go, no. and no. And there's nice yeah. fluffy ways to say no. For example, if your boss gives you another unrealistic expectation, you can say, you know what, boss, I really appreciate you thinking that, knowing that I'm a competent person, but because I value the quality of work I do and I value my personal time with my family, I will have to ask you, would you rather me take on this project right now and put something aside what would you like you know what i mean like basically it's like i'm not going to do two things at the same time boss pick one but i stand by my my quality of work and i also value my personal balance so you know you can go no or you can fluff it out a little bit depending on the situation but you know it gets a lot easier after you say no in my medical practice yes. i had a hard time saying no i was you know yeah, sure, another patient. Yeah, I don't need a lunch break. Yeah, sure, who needs to go pee? You know, yeah, sure, right? Because what do we do, right? Mm -hmm. But then I, I, then, you know, COVID, life, there's nothing left to give. And then it's like, enough. It's not a That's good right. thing, but you learn from them. Absolutely, absolutely correct. Just not, 
not being able to say no, but you know, some people are afraid that if they say no, they're going to lose their job. Um, what do you say to people that have that fear? And that might be real or, you know, perceived. That's a really good question. It's going to be really hard to say it succinctly. However, there, you can still say no without losing your job. And that's the fluffy response. So as long as you have a track record of being, you know, punctual, dedicated, engaged at the workplace and you bring value and you know your value because you know that bottom needs you because that business needs you because you impact their bottom line for the better it's a lot easier to say no but thank you or let's do this or maybe it's not no but it's not right now right so it's right you gotta gauge your audience right because no doesn't work for every situation but yeah, yeah it takes a certain degree of self-confidence to say, no, I'm not going to be able to do that. You know, I, I can't help you. I'd love to help. Can't do that. Exactly. And, and exactly. Oftentimes we might say that if we have another engagement, but we don't say that if we just feel like we need a nap. Anyway, we don't have too much time left. So what, what's the recipe for self-care would you say? Is it just the mani-pedi on the weekend or is it um, something entirely different? It's, so much more than that. She, I actually had a money petty today. Um, it's these regular repeat sustainable inputs we put in our life, whether it's pausing, stopping, smelling the roses, complimenting others, um, feeding our bodies with nutritious fuel, a.k.a. food, um, engaging in hobbies that we enjoy. So it's a continuous deposit. It's It's regular. It's like not just crash on the weekend, let's go for a weekend, get away, and then blaze the rest of the week no it's it's continuously nurturing your emotional physical and mental well-being uh-huh. and sometimes you have to engage other people to help you do that yeah <laughs> and you know what sometimes people think they have to do it all themselves mm, yeah. and, and you know what you have to recognize that you can't and then you bring in a housekeeper or you bring in a gardening company or you bring in you know, somebody to do the laundry or whatever. Somebody yes. bring it, take out foods or healthy meals, you know, take, yes. give yourself a break. And, you know, sometimes you just got to spend the money and make 100%. your life a little bit easier. Make life easy on yourself. That is my message to all of you. And I had a manic headache the other day as well. So it looks like we're both on track for that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have to say. I'm not the least bit of a perfectionist, but I have to say, I, I don't like the color. I'll be going back. <laughs> just drives you crazy. But anyway, I, I don't think I'm a perfectionist, but maybe I am. Who knows? Diagnose me. Um, <laughs> Dr. Mitchell, thank you so much. What a great segment. I really appreciate having this My conversation pleasure. with you. Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.